Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. It is my privilege to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior through what we see in his word. So as we continue on in our worship, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We have sung about God's grace bringing us to redemption and restoration with him. And now we have this blessed opportunity to marvel at God's grace as we dive into his word. So let us read our passage here, Titus 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 8. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Last week, Patrick took us through the eight markers of a discipleship relationship. The last marker was that the discipleship relationship is a reproducing relationship. And that is to say that the discipler is looking to invest himself or herself in the disciple who will then invest in others. It is what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and this is Paul speaking to Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see that generational discipleship take place there in that verse. And this is part of what we have defined as discipleship, personally valuing and applying God's word to ourselves. That's, that's one part, our intentional growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. And you have the other part, then intentionally and selfless, selflessly devoting ourselves to others for their spiritual growth. So as we think about how to do that, we have the privilege this morning of looking at Titus 2 to see how this is fleshed out in the life of the church. And specifically, how this is fleshed out in discipleship relationships with older believers and younger believers. So in this passage, in Titus 2 verses 1 through 8, we'll see four aspects, four aspects of discipleship in the church so that we may be faithful in our goal of making disciples at EBC. Now, before we highlight the first aspect, we need to look at why Paul is instructing Titus in this way. Look at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 
In chapter 1, Paul has just explained what the organization of the church should look like and how Titus and those who oversee the church need to silence false teaching. A false teaching and, and thus unholy living had crept into the church. In Titus 2, verses 1 through 8, you can, you can look at how each group of men and women are called to live and, and come to the conclusion that Paul was instructing them to live in this way because it is possible and reasonable to assume that they were doing the opposite. Paul opens this section with a contrast, but as for you. Titus, in extrapolating it out, the leaders of the church are not to be like those who teach false doctrine. Rather, they are to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak here in verse 1 refers to the continual, consistent calling of the church to live in a holy manner. The church is to take what has been taught, sound doctrine, that is doctrine or teaching, which is healthy, which is proper, which is life-giving for the church, and live that out in a way that glorifies God. When we consider the discipleship relationship within the local church, what we see is a continual call to holiness. A continual call to holiness and to sanctification. That is becoming more like Christ with each passing day. And that process is replicated over and over and over again. So how is this done? What does this look like? Let's get back to those aspects of discipleship in the church. Now, each aspect is not a surprise. You're going to look at each example and say, Nathan, you could have come up with a more clever outline. That's what we see in Scripture here. It's a simple, simple outline, but there's a lot involved in each example as we see it here in Titus 2. So the first aspect that we see is found here in verse 2, the holiness of older men. The holiness of older men. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Who is this referring to? Well, this is referring to those who, who are elderly. This word is seen in Luke 1.18, where Zacharias, the, the father of John the Baptist, refers to himself as an old man. This word is also seen in Philemon 9, where Paul refers to himself as the aged And this would be someone who is around 50 years or older. The beauty of being part of a church like EBC is we have many that are in that category. Not only older men, but older women as well, as we'll see in verse 3. In order for discipleship to take place in the church, the church needs older men and older women. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. Just because you're older does not automatically qualify you for discipleship. Yes, we are to see a gray head as a crown of glory, but why? Why? It is found in the way of righteousness. That's the rest of that that verse in Proverbs 16.31. Those who are older are still to yield fruit in their old age, as it says in Psalm 92.14. One scholar says, old age does not make a believer more godly, more faithful, more satisfied, or more effective in service to God. What does? 
We'll see that here in this passage. What does the holiness of older men look like? Well, Paul Paul highlights six characteristics here in this verse. Six characteristics. The first is older men are to be temperate. They are to be temperate, to be restrained, to be sober-minded, self-controlled. Older men are to live moderate lives. This doesn't have to do with one's socioeconomic status, but rather how they live, how they use their time, how they use their money, where they pour their energy. You can think about this idea of temperance in, in, in terms of priorities. In order for older men to have a proper investment in younger men, they need to have their priorities straight. The pleasures of this world mean nothing. And that's why we are called to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth, as it says in Colossians 3, verse 2. And that's why we're called to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth, as it says in Matthew 6, 20. And that's why we are called to not love the world nor the things of this world in 1 John 2, 15. Older men are to be temperate. They are to be self-controlled. They are to seek first God's kingdom, God's righteousness, as it says in Matthew 6, 33. Older men, does this describe you? Are you seeking God's kingdom or are you seeking your own kingdom? They are to be temperate. And older men are to be dignified. They are to be honorable. They are to be worthy of respect. There is nothing superficial about the older man, as we see here in Titus 2, verse 2. He doesn't find humor in the sinful things of life, nor does he find humor at the expense of others. He desires to honor the Lord in his response to life situations rather than puffing himself up. Now, the older man has, has seen more life than the younger man. The older man has seen those who have lived through the trials of life and is able to understand the brevity of life. Understand that in a way that a younger man cannot understand. The older man has a greater understanding of what truly satisfies. Older men, do your actions warrant honor? Do they warrant respect? Are you dignified? And older men are to be sensible. Some of your versions say self-controlled. They are to be reasonable They are to be thoughtful. They are to be discerning. They are to be self-disciplined. They are not to be tempted by worldly standards. Rather, they view everything through the lens of Scripture. They think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, what has excellent and anything worthy of praise. It's Philippians 4.8. They are to be sensible. And older men are to be sound in faith. And we saw this word sound back in verse 1, and it refers to something that is healthy, something that is proper. The older man's faith should not be weak, should not be malnourished, should not be on death's doorstep. It should be strong, it should be healthy, it should be vibrant. Now, here in verse 2, 
This is a present active participle, meaning that the older man is to be continually sound. You never, never arrive at soundness. His faith is to be continually healthy. His faith, and this is referring to personal faith, personal trust in God, is unwavering. An older man has learned over many decades, despite the circumstances of life, that God is one to be trusted. An older man is one who can say with confidence, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. That is what it looks like to be sound in faith. Now, all of us should aspire to that kind of faith. Older men, is that what you desire? Do you have unshakable, unwavering, vibrant faith? And older men are to be sound in love. In love. Love for whom? Love for God. But also love for others. As the older man advances in years, his love for the Lord and and for other people should be constant. It should be ever-growing. It should be fervent. The older man takes the great commandment and, and thus the great commission seriously. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is one of the most practical ways to love your neighbor? To point them to Christ, to proclaim the gospel. And the older man is reminded of God's love for him, and that propels him to love others. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And a few verses later, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Again, older men, your love for the Lord should propel your love for others. Is your life marked by love for others? I'll make it more specific. Is is your life marked by love for the younger men of this church? How is that seen by those younger than you? Lastly, older men are to be sound in perseverance. Sound in perseverance. They are what is described in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, as steadfast, immovable. They endure to the end. There is hardship, there is trial, there is disappointment. Yes, sometimes there is even failure. But the older man endures through all of it. Leanna and I had a family over this past week, and within the course of conversation, we reflected on the many deaths of senior saints within our congregation, just even over these past few months. This reflection was an opportunity to marvel at the grace and faithfulness of God within the life of this church, to see so many people that have been involved and invested in this church for decades. It's a beautiful thing. Older men endure to the end. Endure to the end. Be faithful to the Lord and what he has called you to be in light of this passage. 
You men are the ones who are to model what a life of holiness looks like to young men like me. I can say that because I'm still under 50. We need you to be the ones who will show us what it looks like to be faithful in the years to come. But it's not just the older men who are called to be models in the church. That's where we see the second aspect of discipleship in the church. The holiness of older women. The holiness of older women. Let's look at verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women. And Paul shifts his focus from older men to older women in the discipleship of the church. Both older men and older women are to be models for the younger generations. And notice that word likewise here in verse 3. Older women are also needed in the life of the church. These women, in contrast to younger women, are women that have, that have raised their families. Some have even become widows. They have lived life long enough to see the triumphs and trials that come with being a godly woman. In order for the older woman to be a godly example for young women, Paul highlights four characteristics here in this verse. First characteristic, older women are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in their behavior. The word reverent is a compound word in the Greek which has the root meaning of being priest-like. This is not a mere external performance that's put on by the woman. There is an internal component of holiness that is seen. Older women are to be totally given to the Lord and His work, and as a result are able to be examples of holiness to younger women. One may think of Anna in Luke chapter 2. It says in verse 36 that she was a prophetess in the temple. She was advanced in years. It says in verse 37 that she was a widow who never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Not advocating, ladies, that you're here at all times of the day. But what I'm desiring to highlight here is this woman's commitment to the Lord. She was dedicated to pursuing holiness. She was reverent in her behavior. Older woman, does this describe you? Are you reverent in your behavior? Is, is there an internal holiness in your life that just comes out for us as a church to see? Is that an encouragement to the younger women in your life? And Paul continues on in describing the opposite of reverence in the next two characteristics. Verse 3, older women are not malicious gossips. They're not ones who pick up the phone to call someone and say, guess what I heard? Or you can't believe what just happened in regard to a situation that has nothing to do with them. They are not ones who are chomping at the bit to hear slander or words that demean others. There are few things more damaging to a church than gossip. It divides. It tears through relationships. You get a picture of that in James chapter 3. The tongue, and this is reference to speech, is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. 
and the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on course for our life and is set on fire by hell. These verses should scare us. I know they scare me. Let this not be a marker of our church. In Titus 2, Paul not only says that older women are not to gossip, but they are not malicious gossips. This isn't mere chatter, even though that's not good. There is harmful intent to what they're saying. Malicious in the Greek is the word diabolos. And it is used primarily in the New Testament as a reference to the devil. When you're gossiping in this way, when you're gossiping in a malicious way, you are doing the work of the devil. It is unholy. So how should older women speak? Well, there's wisdom and restraint. That's one. We see this in Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lip is wise. Be wise about what you say. Be wise about knowing when not to speak as well. Seek to unify with your speech. We see that in Ephesians 4.25. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And that last phrase is so important. So important. We're members of one another. Remember that this morning. We're focusing on discipleship in the church. And when there is gossip, you are hurting the body of Christ. Speak truth. Unify instead of divide. Use your words to build up others. And that's what we see a few verses later in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome, no unholy word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Gracious, appropriate words, not words that are malicious. And Paul also highlights in verse 3 that older women are not enslaved to much wine. They are not to be mastered by it. They are not to let it have ownership over their lives. And this refers to drunkenness. It's, it's helpful here to point out that this letter was written to Titus while he was in Crete. So Crete is an island in the, the middle of the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Greece. And the Cretans were, were a people who were known for heavy, heavy drinking. It was just part of their culture. One could argue that these were a people group that was enslaved to much wine. And Paul is saying that the older women of the church are to be countercultural in this regard. They are to not be controlled by wine. He doesn't say that they can't drink it, but he does say that they cannot be mastered by it. Why? Because as a follower of Christ, he, being Christ, should be the master over one's life. If an older woman is enslaved to wine, what example is she leaving for younger women? But on the flip side, if an older woman is, as, as Paul described himself, a slave of Christ, what example is she leaving for younger women? 
Now, Paul ends this section on older women in the positive. Older women are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women. They are to teach what is noble, what is excellent, what is holy. And remember, these are women who have labored for years in teaching their own families. And now they're tasked with teaching the young women of the church. Again, this is why older women are needed in the life of the church. Older women of EBC, our young women need you. They need you to be the model of what a holy woman should be in light of what this passage says. They need you to show them how to be faithful to the Lord as they grow older. One may think that this is solely a responsibility of of the pastor or of the elders, but as we see in this passage, it is the responsibility of older women. There is, or I'll say there should be, a purpose to your holiness in the life of the church. And we see that purpose statement here in verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women. Older women are to model holiness, being reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. If you, as an older woman, are modeling holiness, you're able to encourage the younger women in what they are to do. This word encourage here is related to the word sensible that we saw in verse 2. It means to cause someone to be of sound judgment or cause someone to have a sound mind. There's a facet of teaching there. Older women, are you involved in that work? Again, the church needs you. The younger women of this church need you. This is why our women's ministry is structured the way that it is. They have Titus two events, Bible studies. They've had periodic gatherings throughout the summer, all for the purpose of developing these discipleship relationships among the older women and the younger women of this church. If you don't know where to connect with the younger women, I would encourage you to be a part of these things. Take the time to get to know younger women during these events, during these studies. I encourage you also to reach out to our women's ministry co-directors, Buffy and Regina. They would love to help you think through a young woman to disciple. Their contact information is in the back of your bulletin. So what are older women encouraging the younger women to do? Be holy. And this is seen in the next aspect of discipleship in the church. The third aspect of discipleship in the church is the holiness of young women. The holiness of young women. Let's continue reading in verse 4. Older women are to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. These young women are of child-rearing age, old enough to be married. They are called to a life of holiness. First, young women are to love their husbands. They are to love their husbands. And this love that Paul is talking about in verse 4 is, is not a sacrificial love or a romantic love, although those things should be seen in marriage. But this word love here in verse 4 is referring to a friendship love. 
a tender, affectionate love for one's husband. There's devotion. There's compassion. There's just an enjoyment of being together. Young women are to love their husbands like they would their closest friend. And second, young women are to love their children. They're to love their children. This love is described in the same way. It is warm, it's, it's tender, it's nourishing, it's devoted. Young moms, you have such an important role in your family. The love you have for your children is vital. And older women, your work in this area is just as important. Young women are bombarded with ideals when it comes to the family from our culture that are not in alignment with God's word. Whether it's from social media or other places. They're told that it's, that it's okay to see their families as an inconvenience, as a barrier to reaching, fulfilling their dreams. Older women, it's important for you to come alongside our young women in the church and show them that it's okay to live in accordance with God's word. As a matter of fact, it's necessary. Because your holiness depends on it. So how can you encourage older women? How can you encourage young women to love their husbands and children in this way? Encourage the young women to love their husbands with words that build up, as we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. Encourage them to show affection for their husbands. Encourage them to do things together that cultivate the marriage relationship. Encourage them to communicate love and affection toward their children. Encourage them to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. Encourage discipline within the home. Encourage growth and maturity in the home. Older women, encourage the younger women in these things. Share about how the Lord grew you, how the Lord matured you in these areas. Younger women, love your husbands. Love your children in these ways. And Paul continues in verse 5. Young women are to be sensible. Same characteristic that's seen in older men. They're to be reasonable. They're to be thoughtful. They are to be discerning. They are to be self-disciplined. Young women are to be pure. They are to be innocent. Older versions say chaste. And this is referring to moral purity here. Young women are to be committed to the Lord, to their husbands. And they are to be spotless in this regard. Older women, help younger women in these matters. Help them to see why being self-disciplined and pure is necessary to live a holy life. Appoint them to verses like Philippians 4.8 that we saw a little bit ago. They're to be pure. And they're to be workers at home. Workers at home. This is not cultural. This is not outdated. This is how God designed it to be. Home should be where the young woman's heart and mind is focused. Home should be where her priorities are. Now, does this mean that a wife can never leave the home or work outside the home? No. You see a picture of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, and she leaves her home to work at times. But where is her priority? It's on the home. Home is her primary ministry. And there are obviously reasons, uh, obviously seasons of life where one may need to work outside the home, but the focus should still be on the home. 
I appreciated what John MacArthur had to say in reference to this. He says, she may have a reasonable outside job or choose to work in the church or to minister in a Christian organization, a hospital, a school, or many other ways. But the home is a young woman's special domain and always should be her highest priority. That is where she is able to offer the most encouragement to her husband and is the best place for extending hospitality to Christian friends, to unbelieving neighbors, and visiting missionaries or other Christian workers. For those of you who are not married, this is a place where your home can best be utilized, making it a hospitable place for others, making it a place where the love of Christ is put on full display for all to see. Young women are also to be kind. Be kind. They are to be good to those in the home, husbands, children, and to those who may enter her home. They are to be like God himself, who is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And they are to be, as it says in Ephesians 4.32, kind to others, tender-hearted. Be kind. And young women are to be subject to their own husbands. And Tim is going to delve into this topic more next week, so we'll just touch on it briefly this morning. You've heard this truth in Scripture, or are at least familiar with the concept most Christian weddings will have some mention of Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And you see this same concept in Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3 as well. The young woman is submissive. But the verb to be subject is in the middle voice. This is a submission of one's self to her husband, not her husband making her submit. And it's in the present tense, which means it's a continual lifestyle. The young woman is to love her husband and be submissive to him. I appreciated the words of Charles Spurgeon in reference to his wife, Susanna. He says, she delights in her husband, in his person, his character, his affection. Her heart's love belongs to him and him only. She seeks no renown for herself. His honor is upon her and she rejoices in it. Such a wife, as a true spouse, realizes the model marriage relation and sets forth what our oneness with the Lord ought to be. Now, this does not change her position in Christ. This does not mean that women are inferior to men in the eyes of the Lord. This shows that the young woman and her desire to be holy fulfills her God-given role because her desire is to honor the Lord. If she does not, the word of God will be dishonored. Instead, the purpose for why she lives in this way, as seen in this purpose statement in verse 5, is so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Young woman, how you live not only affects you, it affects those in your home. Your home should be a reflection of the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God. There should be honor in how you live, which magnifies the gospel to your family, to others who enter your home, and to the watching world around you. Older women, help our younger women in these matters. Remember, we are members of one another, seeking to build one another up. Don't forsake that task. 
And discipleship in the church does not end here. Sorry, guys. We have one more aspect of discipleship in the church. The fourth aspect, the holiness of young men. The holiness of young men. Let's read the rest of our passage, starting here in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Like young women, these men are, are old enough to be married, to have responsibilities of their own. But that doesn't negate those that might be younger, maybe the teenagers around, to learn from this passage. We see in verse 6, likewise urge. Who is to do the urging? Who is to admonish these young men? Who is to exhort these young men toward a life of holiness? It's the older men. Older men, you are to come alongside younger men in the church to help them in their pursuit of holy living. And what describes the holiness of young men? We're going to see five characteristics here. The young men are to be sensible. Be sensible. Now, we've seen this word in relation to older men and younger women. Uh, maybe the Cretan older women didn't have an issue in this area. But young men are to have self-control. They are to be self-disciplined. They are to do what, what Paul exhorted Timothy to do, to, to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Young men who are prone to impulsiveness, who can be volatile, who may be arrogant, are to have self-control. They are to be discerning. They are to be sensible. And notice the next phrase, in all things. Grammatically, that phrase fits better with what has come previously. You could say, be sensible in all things. Be sensible in everything. This is all-encompassing. This is comprehensive. This is every facet of your life. In every place in your life, you are to be sensible. Your thoughts, your words, your actions. And this is long-lasting. This is a present tense verb here, meaning this should be a continual way of life. And Paul then turns his attention directly to Titus, a young man himself. He would be the direct example for the young men of the church. Paul says in verse 7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. This word example literally refers to, to a model or impression of something. The word was used to refer to the nail prints in, in Jesus' hands and feet in John chapter 20. And Titus was, was to be that model, that, that imprint for the young men in the church to follow. And so the young men are to be sensible, and, and Paul continues to say, in light of Titus's example, that they are to have good deeds. And some of your versions say works here. Yes, holiness is seen in being sensible, but it is also seen in doing good, doing what is beautiful, doing what is noble. It is living out what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, good deeds, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
And young men are to be sensible and do what is good with purity in doctrine. This is literally purity in the doctrine. And purity can also be rendered sincerity or integrity. It is the opposite of being corrupt, which so many young men are prone to be. They are to have purity in the doctrine, in the teaching, in the instruction. Young men, what you say, how you instruct others should be based on the word of God. In order for you to have purity in doctrine, you need to be men who are growing in the knowledge of the word of God. This is why it is so important, so important for you to be involved in a discipleship relationship where an older man can come alongside you and help you grow so that you can have purity in doctrine. If you're looking to grow in this area, I I encourage you to reach out to Joseph Hunter, our discipleship coordinator. His contact information is on the back of your bulletin. Make this a priority in your life. And Paul continues to say that through the example of Titus, young men are to be dignified. Dignified. Just like the older men, young men are to be dignified. They're to be serious. There should be a gravity, a weightiness to how they live. They should lead respectful lives. That's not to say that young men can't laugh or can't have a sense of humor or can't enjoy life. But there should be a serious view about life and what truly matters. And that should be seen by others. Young men are to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. We saw this word sound at the beginning of this passage. It refers to what is healthy, what is wholesome. It should be edifying. It should be life-giving. It should be beyond reproach. It should be above criticism. You should not be able to be condemned by others because of how you talk. Young men, you would do well to memorize Ephesians 4.29, which we saw earlier. You do well to memorize Colossians 4.16. Let your speech always be with grace, right? As though seasoned with salt. So important. Your holiness is seen in how you talk. If you desire to be like Christ, commit to growing in this area. Older men, help us younger men grow in this area. Young men, if you are living a sensible life, doing what is good, pure in what you teach or how you instruct others in the word, living respectfully, using edifying speech, as it says in verse 8, the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Your witness depends on it. In light of this passage, I would say our testimony as a church depends on living these things out. Our testimony as a church depends on the holiness of our people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, all working together. We all need each other. It is so easy for us to invest in relationships with people that are just like us. We can get so comfortable with others who are in our age range or our stage, you can call it season of life, that we fail to look around at a church of older people and younger people that are there to help us grow in holiness. Look outside yourself. Look outside your own group of people and see that we all need each other in our pursuit of holiness. 
As we saw in our passage this morning, investing solely in relationships with others just like us is not what God wants for the church. Older men need to be investing in younger men. Older women need to be investing in younger women. Young women should desire for older women to invest in them, and young men should desire for older men to invest in them. And this is one of the reasons why the corporate gathering of believers is so important. We have this amazing privilege on a Sunday morning to invest in the lives of others, spurring them on toward holiness, toward Christ-likeness. We can't do that. We can't do that if we stick to our age groups at 9 o'clock, then leave immediately afterward to go watch the service at home. We can't do that if we stick to our age groups at 9 o'clock and just leave to go about other things with our day. We can't do that if we stay home on a Sunday morning because it's more comfortable to us or because it's easy. We need each other. Four weeks ago, I stood here and reminded our church of Christ's commission to disciple from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. If we are to use the gospel call to others in our effort to make disciples, we are to live out what we see here in Titus chapter 2. Be committed to this work for the glory of our amazing God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word. We're grateful that you have, have given us this task of being involved in the lives of your people. I pray for us as a church that we would be involved in this work and that would serve to be a wonderful, beautiful testimony within this region. We pray that your spirit would help us to put these things into practice so we can honor you, so we can glorify you in how we live these things out. We thank you so much for what we have just heard from your word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.